invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'm going to look at the entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 19. Uh, we're nearing the end of the central section of the book of Deuteronomy containing these various laws and rules for Israel, running from chapter 12 to chapter 26. And so today we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 25, which has to do with rules for justice in community. Now, before I read uh, the passage, let me remind us that this is the word of the living God. So let's be careful to hear what he has to say to his people today. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judges shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in, the presence, in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small, you shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. Full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way 
when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Well, there's a lot of talk today about justice. And there's a lot of disagreement about what justice is. People on the left, when they say something is just, people on the right think that thing is unjust and vice versa. And whether folks realize it or not, our understanding of what is just and what is unjust is largely shaped by the stories that we tell ourselves. Because we are storytelling creatures, and narratives have the power to shape our lives and form our thinking. It's one of the reasons why the great empires and kingdoms and nations throughout history, have relied upon telling stories to shape and form a sense of identity. It's one of the reasons there's a great debate and an argument over the origin story of the United States of America today because we are formed by the stories we tell ourselves and our children after us. And and as Christians, the story we tell ourselves that shapes our whole lives also profoundly impacts our understanding of justice. Israel's experience tells this story in miniature as an example for us. But before we consider that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. And remember that in the beginning, God created a people for himself, And he created a place to dwell in the midst of his people. And relationships were whole. Relationships were what they were intended to be. Between man and creation, between man and woman, between woman and man to God. There was harmony and peace. No injustice, no power struggles, no oppressor and oppressed. There's no injustice, that is, until humanity rebelled against God. And at that point, injustice broke into the world and brought corruption to every possible relationship. And in that world, then, we find Israel, and at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find Israel under oppression in Egypt, enslaved by Pharaoh. They were, they were oppressed. Life was made bitter and hard service. They were, according to Exodus 1, ruthlessly made to work as slaves. And when they became more and more numerous and Pharaoh became nervous that they might rise up in rebellion, their newborn sons were viciously slaughtered. But God, God heard their cries. He heard They're groaning, and in real time and space in history, God executed justice 
for the oppressed. He displayed his justice and righteousness by bringing helpless people out of bondage under the blood of the Passover lamb. By conquering their enemies and by bringing them into a land of rest where where righteousness and justice was to dwell. You see, this is, this is the narrative framework. This is the story that defines God's people and their understanding of justice. This is why Moses repeatedly tells the people to remember the story, to remember where they came from and remember what God had done for them. Remember that they were slaves who received the the justice and mercy of God. And now within the promised land, they were being called to show justice and mercy to others. This is why Deuteronomy is, is peppered with commands to remember. Because whenever or wherever the story is forgotten, injustice is sure to follow. But wherever the story is truly remembered and embodied, Justice and righteousness dwell. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider five matters of community justice here in Deuteronomy 25. I think about criminal justice, compensatory justice, generational justice, economic justice, and retributive justice. Verses 1 and 3 deal with criminal justice. Justice, And it's pretty clear on the face of it that the primary purpose of this first law is to protect the dignity of convicted criminals. To protect the dignity of the guilty. If there was a dispute between two parties in Israel, no one was permitted to take the law into their own hands. If there was an irresolvable dispute, it went to court where a judge was responsible for making a decision between them. So first of all, you see there's, there's an insistence here upon a fair trial. And if the court uh, sentenced an offender to corporal punishment, the judge was also responsible for ensuring that that punishment was properly administered. So mob justice was strictly forbidden. Notice as well the emphasis on how punishment must be in proportion to the offense. There's a strict limit placed upon the degree of punishment here. A fair trial, proper administration of punishment, punishment in proportion to the offense. These are all things that perhaps we take for granted today, but maybe we shouldn't because in an increasingly secular society, these basic principles of justice are being violated. But we see here that they are rooted in the Christian tradition and were not commonplace in the ancient world. A corporal punishment was a legal form of punishment within Israel, but physical punishment could easily degenerate into what amounted to physical abuse, particularly if a community was upset about some crime. It'd be all too easy to treat a criminal 
as less than human, as subhuman. So look at verse 3 again. Note the primary concern at the end. Lest, notice the language, your brother be degraded in your sight. A commitment to justice means being concerned about the dignity of others, even convicted criminal. And if we reflect on this law in, in light of the whole story of Scripture, I think it really sheds light upon the concern that Jesus has for us. Think about it. If, if, we, if we left to ourselves were to stand before the ultimate and final judge of all the earth, God himself, we all would stand condemned. We would all stand before God worthy, deserving of just punishment for our wrongdoing. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not ashamed to call criminals like us brothers. And he even took our place and suffered degradation for our freedom. Think about this law with me for a minute in relation to Jesus' own experience. He was, he was beaten beyond all human recognition, beyond human semblance, in, in a way that clearly violates the principles of this law. He, he suffered degradation and was utterly humiliated, and he suffered this way, tasting death, even the shameful death of the cross, because he's not ashamed to call you and I family. So this law helps us appreciate what Jesus has done for guilty people like us. Jesus, the innocent one, took the place of the guilty. And the gospel narratives tell the story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion in such a way to help us understand that that is what Jesus was doing. After Jesus was, was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was taken before Caiaphas, the high priest, along with the, the scribes and, and the elders who were gathered together. And, and we need to recognize that was, that was the court of Jesus' day. These were the individuals who were responsible for rendering just verdicts. But in reality, this was a kangaroo court. Gospels tell us that they were seeking false testimony in order to condemn Jesus to death. But when Jesus declared himself to be the Son of Man, that was all the reason they needed to say, this man deserves to die. And then we read that they, his face covered struck him, spit in his face, and said, prophesy, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They degraded the Son of God. And when morning came, they, they bound Jesus, and they took him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Remember, they didn't, they didn't have the authority to actually carry out the death penalty, so they brought him before 
Pontius Pilate, who did have the authority as Roman governor to execute. And so they bring him before Pilate. And you remember at this point, the Gospels tell us this this strange story, if we're not used to hearing it, about the governor's custom every year to release to the people a prisoner. And so Pilate sets before the people Jesus in whom he finds no fault, and Barabbas, a convicted criminal. And you remember what happens. The leaders convince the people to cry out for Barabbas' release, and they cry out, crucify him, crucify Jesus. And in one of the greatest ironies of history, through the greatest injustice of all, The perfect justice of God was being revealed. See, the people condemned an innocent man to death, but in God's superintending purpose, the innocent one is taking the place of the guilty so that they may be set free. That's why the Gospels tell us the story about Barabbas. After Jesus was condemned to crucifixion, He was then led uh, to the governor's headquarters where he was then scourged. Remember, he received a severe beating with a whip, uh, with with lashes holding bones and and bits of metal. And this this, this punishment, this scourging, was not carried out before the judge who was responsible in in, in light of Deuteronomy 25 to ensure that The punishment was in proportion to the offense. Instead, the gospel narratives say hell broke loose in this moment. The soldiers called together a whole battalion, up to 600 men, to have fun with Jesus, have sport with Jesus. They degraded the Son of God. They stripped him of his clothing put a purple robe on him. They fashioned a crown of thorns, pressing it down upon his brow. They struck him with a reed. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, bowing down to him in mock homage. They mocked him like this. Then they stripped him once again. They put his clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him between two criminals. And so Deuteronomy 25 tells us how a criminal ought to be treated, and the Gospels tell us how the innocent Son of God was treated, all because he is not ashamed to call us brothers. You see, the law maintains the dignity of the accused, but Jesus, the Son of God, was utterly degraded in the sight of all. You see, what does that communicate to us? I hope you see in this story how much Jesus loves you. That he was willing to go to this extent to set you free and have you for himself. He didn't end up in this situation by accident. He knew where he was going. He set his face like a flint 
to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, to be our substitute, to stand in our place, to set us free, even though it would mean utter humiliation. And so when we, when we consider this law about criminal justice in light of the bigger story, well, it gives us a reason to sing, doesn't it? Puts a new song in our lips because this law bears witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ who was beaten to call us brothers, beaten to bring many sons to glory, not only that we might not be degraded in the sight of other people, but so that we might be acceptable in the sight of God our Father. Let's go to the next law. Look at, look at verse 4. A law about compensation. It's striking, really, how much attention is given to the proper care and treatment of animals throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It's embedded in the fourth commandment, isn't it? Where God requires God's people to not only rest from their labors one day a week, but to give rest to others, including the animals under their care. Uh, According to Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4, lost animals are to be returned to their owners. Fallen animals are to be helped back up again. Likewise, Deuteronomy 22, verses 6 and 7, we looked at this not too long ago, forbids the exploitation of wild animals, including little birds, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. And now in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, the law says that oxen should not be muzzled when they are treading out the grain because that would prevent them from enjoying a share of the food that their labor makes available. The oxen have a right to enjoy the fruit of their labor. And the the book of Proverbs calls this kind of concern for animals a mark of righteousness. Proverbs 12, 10. And it is a reflection of God's own heart, which we saw on display in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Now we should also think about how this law is applied in other places in Scripture because the Apostle Paul, isn't this interesting? Paul quotes this specific law twice in the New Testament. First in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 8 through 12, and then second in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And, and it's in the context of talking about compensating those who make their living by the gospel. Now reflecting, reflecting just for a second on Paul's application of this particular law will actually, I think, help us to be better readers of all of these laws in this section of Deuteronomy. Because the significance of this law is not limited to oxen treading out grain. The principle at the heart of this law has to do with the fair treatment of workers, whether they be people or animals. The laborer deserves his wages, as Paul puts it, whether it's grain for the ox or material things for servants of the gospel. As we think about this law, I just... I want to briefly express my gratitude to you as a congregation and then ask us a few questions. I want to express my gratitude because 
me and my family are dependent upon your faithful generosity for our provision. And I do not take that for granted, friends. Uh, Let me put it this way. I have never felt like a muzzled ox serving as a pastor here at, at Trinity. And for that, I am very, very grateful to you. But let, 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 let's, let's, let's ask some questions because this law doesn't just apply to oxen and preachers. Right? Um, questions we can ask ourselves. Are we ensuring, in so far as it depends upon us, that workers are receiving just wages? Do we ever hinder people from enjoying the fruits of their labors? Do we ever cause people to feel like their efforts are efforts of futility? Do we ever ask others for work and refuse compensation? There are all kinds of subtle ways of doing that, but we're being reminded here that in a just society, an honest day's work receives an honest day's wages. Let's think about generational justice in verses 5 through 10 and then verses 11 and 12. In verses uh, 5 and 10, there are actually two, uh, two different laws here that concern generational justice. First, we have the Leveret marriage law, which required a man to accept responsibility for his dead brother's childless widow by marrying her and raising up offspring so that his brother's name would not be cut off. Now, you might hear that and think, that's just weird. Sounds really strange to us. But Leverett Leverett marriage was, in reality, a costly act of care and generosity. Raising, Raising up a child for your dead brother caring for his widow, came at a considerable cost. This this law was designed to provide security for a widow in her her bereavement, prevented any loss of land, which was so central to life in the promised land, and ensured that the dead man's name would not be cut off from among his brothers. Now, the second part of this law in verses 7 through 10 says that while leveret marriage was a moral responsibility, it could not be forced. In other words, a person could not be compelled to fulfill this responsibility. A brother-in-law could refuse to take his brother's widow and provide for her. But notice that this law makes such a refusal a matter of, of social disgrace. And so there was a public ritual that was carried out before uh, the elders when the widow would come before them. The removal of the man's sandal is likely symbolic of the man's renunciation of any claim to the property of his dead brother. And after pulling off his sandal, the woman would spit in the man's face and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And we see the concerns of these laws reflected, don't we, in the book of Ruth, particularly in in Ruth chapter 4, where we are presented with two different men who are set in contrast to one another. 
teach us a very important lesson. When the responsibility of leveret marriage was brought before the closest of kin, you remember at first he agreed. He agreed to fulfill the responsibility because he saw it as an opportunity to grow his own assets. He, 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 was, he was concerned about how it would benefit him, seeing it as an opportunity to expand. But when told that if he buys the field from Naomi, that he must also then take Ruth to be his wife, the widow of the dead, quote, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, well, then he flat out refused because he would have to buy the land and then give it to Ruth's son. And so the Redeemer said, I cannot do this lest I impair my own inheritance. He refused this moral responsibility because he was only concerned about his own interests. Now contrast that with Boaz. When the responsibility fell to him, he, without hesitation, took on the responsibility to have Ruth as his bride and raise up offspring to inherit the land with steadfast love and justice, Boaz rose to the occasion and assumed the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Of course, Boaz foreshadows Jesus, doesn't he, as the ultimate kinsman redeemer who redeemed a bride for himself and secured an everlasting inheritance for the sons of God. So the law of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25 and Boaz's willingness to, even eagerness, to assume responsibility shows us what kind of redeemer Jesus is. Shows us what kind of man he is. He does not look to his own interests. He looks to the interests of others, and he redeems even at cost to himself. So Ruth's provision and, and place among God's people, secured by Boaz's righteous action, reflects the steadfast faithfulness and love of Christ for us. Think about it. Though Ruth came empty-handed and humbled to the core, Boaz did not shame her. He treated her with dignity and, and respect. Though she was dis disgraced by her position, despised by many for her ethnicity, she, she has nothing to offer here. Despite all of this, Boaz saw the need, and he did not refuse. Friends, that is the kind of redeemer we have in Jesus Christ. Now, verses 11 and 12 explain what should be done to a woman who threatens her brother-in-law's ability to have children. So notice what's going on in this passage. In verses 5 and 10, you have a case of a man who refuses to provide children for his dead brother's wife. And here in verses 11 and 12, a living man's wife attacks his opponent's ability to bear children. And she is to bear the shame 
of her attempted castration in her mutilated hand. And we, we should note here that this is, this is the only law in the Bible that prescribes physical mutilation for punishment. And this is something that was common in the ancient world, but there's just this one instance of it in the Mosaic law. And although I'm sure the severity of this law may disturb us, we need to appreciate that it is designed to underscore the importance of childbearing. The, 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 the sacredness of the capacity that God has given to man and woman to bring forth new life. Unless we fool ourselves into thinking that we're somehow more refined or enlightened today, let's not forget for a moment what passes for reproductive justice in our society, which is nothing less than the mutilation of entire human bodies, entire babies' bodies in the womb of their mothers. And so if we think we know better, we need to, we need to pause and think again. But by way of contrast to the way our society denigrates the gift of childbearing, the Bible celebrates the gift of childbearing and fiercely defends it with strong deterrence to protect the capacity of men and women to bring new life into the world. Now look with me at, at verses 13 through 16, which deals with economic justice. <clears throat> the law forbids here uh, unjust measures, unjust weights. Now the use of measures and weights is not as common today as it was for Israel, but the, the basic injustice <laughs> highlighted in this law is very common today, isn't it? This law forbids unjust transactions, unfair business dealings. This kind of thing happens all of the time today. Since we moved to Johnstown uh, in 2013, both of the homes that we have lived in have had significant issues that should have been mentioned in the homeowner's disclosure but weren't. Now, to be completely fair, one of them was a leaky roof but said it had been re repaired and was in working order for some time except for the fact that the first night we slept in our new house and it rained, we heard the dripping of water in our bedroom, right? Yeah. Why do people do that? Well, maybe because they don't want to foot the bill for repairs or they don't want the value of the home to de decrease. How many of us have purchased a used vehicle and been told that it's been looked over thoroughly and everything's in good working order and, and only a few weeks later to find out that they put a band-aid over an underlying issue that's going to cost you thousands of dollars. We could think of example after example of, of this kind of thing. We've likely all experienced some kind of injustice in business dealings. But again, what, what about us? We need to bring it closer to home. Think of Proverbs 20, verse 14, which says, Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he boasts. You ever try to rip someone off? You ever, you ever tell someone, oh, this isn't worth that, and then walking away say, I can't believe I got that deal? God hates dishonest business practices. 
according to Deuteronomy 25, 16. He says, it is an abomination to him. And according to Proverbs 11, verse 1, a just weight is his delight. See, God is just in every sense of the word. And he wants his people to reflect his justice. And that has direct consequences for our business dealings. God delights in fairness and honesty, and that means we must always be honest and never take advantage. And finally, let's consider this last law uh, related to retributive justice. I think it would be helpful for us to read this again. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Notice this injustice is rooted in no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you, For an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Let's be clear about this. This law is not teaching us to get even with those who have done us wrong. We need to set this verse, this passage, in the larger context. Going all the way back, really, to Genesis 3.15, when God promised to establish enmity between the seed of the woman, those clinging to God's promise that would be fulfilled in Christ, and the seed of the serpent, those who serve the purposes of the evil one. Remember God's covenant promise to Abraham, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. Remember what the Apostle John says all of the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 12, when that ancient serpent, the devil, this this great dragon now, seeks to devour this woman who has given birth to a male child. But because the evil one cannot devour Christ, what does he do? He goes after Christ's people. In John's words, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. So with that larger biblical context in view, think about Israel at this pivotal moment in redemptive history. God has just delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. He's bringing them out to bring them in, and they're on the way, but they're vulnerable and exposed. And in come the Amalekites, cutting off the tail, striking the weakest among them down. This likely would have been the elderly. The sick, perhaps families with little children or pregnant women. You see, the Amalekites, they represent the seed of the serpent, dishonoring those God is intent on blessing. They represent the forces of evil arrayed against God and his people. So let's be clear again, this this law is not prescribing revenge. Remember what the Apostle Paul says, as Christians, we do not avenge ourselves, but we leave it to the wrath of God. 
But at this stage in redemptive history, this was God's wrath being revealed in time and history on God's enemies for what they had done. And and this serves as an assurance to God's people in every age that the just judge of all the earth will do what is right. To the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is real. And sometimes it manifests in physical persecution. God's people being cut down. And this law figures it. It points to the end of all of those who persist in standing against God and his kingdom. And this law declares that their destruction is decreed. As the book of Revelation shows, even if God's people are martyred for their faith, a day is coming when the books will be opened and the judge of all the earth will do what is right. A day is coming when everything will be made right. When wrongs will be righted. When the wronged will be made whole. What a day that will be. What a day. And because... Because this is our story, brothers and sisters. And because this is our good future in Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who are committed to doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. For the one who, who was beaten, the innocent son of God, who was treated like a criminal so that we could be set free. Uh, we thank you for him who was crucified and hung on a tree to disarm the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. To bring us out of bondage into a land where righteousness and justice dwell. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would would work in all our lives so that we are conformed to your image, so that we are a people who do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.